0: Hi Susan. Hello. I thought it would be good if we started with a little bit about how you kind of got into the recording industry and how your kind of path led up to working with Prince in his home studio.
1: Um, So I got into the business in 1978. I was living in Southern California. I knew that I wanted to be involved in music making in some way, although I'm not a musician. I don't write or play or anything like that. And I had no desire to be a performer. I really thought that I would enjoy the work of making records. But I had no no idea how to begin. I didn't know anyone in the music industry. I didn't know how one went about doing something like that. One thing I knew was that I had a capacity for or studying and that I could study audio electronics and I could could be of use as an audio technician and that was actually an easier route for a woman in 1978 because there was, safe to say, in the 1970s and earlier there was—it was very difficult for a woman to get into the studio as a producer or an engineer. There just weren't any examples of many. But as a technician, you know, the tape machine or the console doesn't care what gender you are. If it's broken, it just needs someone to come in and fix it. So uh, I entered the music business through that door by studying and working really hard and. And working as a technician um, from from those early days, working in Hollywood for a company called Audio Industries Corporation, after a few years, I was hired away by uh, Graham Nash. They owned a recording studio called Rudy Records in Hollywood, so they hired me to be their maintenance tech. I would do the repairs in their studio uh, I was with them for about two and a half years, and um, I heard through the professional Grapevine that Prince was looking for an audio technician. It was just the perfect gig for me because I was a Prince fan, because I really knew my stuff at this point. I'd only been in the business about five years, but I'd been well trained. So uh, when I heard he was looking for a technician, I just immediately knew that was going to be my job. I was going to get that job. And sure enough, I got it. I moved from Los Angeles to Minnesota. Where he lived and worked, and started working for him. He was the one that transitioned me from the maintenance tech chair into the recording engineering chair.
0: Were you doing some kind of learning on the job then? If that was your first experience of engineering.
1: Oh, absolutely! I knew how the gear worked, so I I was quite capable of uh, repairing the equipment, and so of course I understood signal flow it was not a problem for me to get microphones or keyboards or guitars or anything else to the tape and then get it back from the tape into being played back the difficulty for me what i had no experiences in was being an artist not art of engineering but Fortunately for me, of course, Prince had his own sound. He liked doing everything himself. He was very hands-on. He didn't do everything in the studio, but he did quite a lot of it. So he taught me his sound, and that's what I learned in the years when I was with him. That was a little bit of a problem after I left Prince, because the only sound I really knew was his. His, This wasn't necessarily the best sound compared to Michael Jackson and what Bruce Whittian was doing out there in L.A., with Quincy Jones, uh, we weren't nearly as, as what most record makers were then, but uh, I learned. I learned in, in the years after I left Prince as well.
0: What was the studio set up like there when you arrived in terms of different rooms and the kind of basic equipment?
1: When I first joined Prince in 1983, Paisley Park Studios had not yet been built So when I first joined him, um, he had a bedroom studio. And in that bedroom studio, it was a pretty small bedroom uh, of a typical suburban house in Chanhassen, Minnesota. So it was just a bedroom, and Westlake monitors built into the the wall. He had a a recording console in there. Ultimately, it was an API console, although not when I first joined him. And he had an Ampex MM MM1200 tape machine and some outboard gear. And in that little control room, it's where he did Darling Nikki on the Purple Rain album, for example. He did a lot of work all by himself in that room. Um, He also, with my help, was able to record at rehearsal. So we had a, a warehouse at that time. And in this commercial warehouse, not outfitted for recording or anything like that, not even outfitted for music, but at this commercial warehouse where the band would set up and play, uh, we could take the microphones that were miking the band and route all those into a splitter snake. From the splitter snake, we could feed two consoles, a monitor mix console and then a recording console. So uh, recording at rehearsal, like where we did Let's Go Crazy and some other things, um, just involved setting up a console and a tape machine and outboard gear and speakers right there and a piece of cement floor in a in a warehouse with a corrugated tin ceiling and kind of a very crude environment, certainly not acoustically isolated or electrically perfected in any way, but it got the job done.
0: Do you remember struggling with any of the kind of acoustics or working methods there when it came to kind of mix time?
1: I can't say that I struggled so much because I frankly, when it came to engineering, really didn't know what I was doing. Like It was not a struggle for me to get signal from the instruments and the voices that were performing music to the tape machine and to get it back back again through the monitor chain. That was The fortunate thing for me at that time was that so many of Prince's sources of music were electronic or direct. So the drums, he pretty much used drum machine. And I had put together a system so Bobby Z, his drummer, could use Prince's preferred drum machine which was the LM1. He could use that on stage and then supplement it with an actual acoustic snare drum and with acoustic cymbals and things like that. So we had a lot of electronic sound sources which made the signal of course very clean in those days. And of course we mic'd amps, we mic'd the bass amp, we mic'd guitar amps. Certainly we mic'd vocals. There were plenty of acoustic sources, but there were all were also plenty of electronic sources. So um the lack of acoustical isolation wasn't too much of a problem. Um, the other thing about, about about Prince and his band in those was not like a lot needed to be overdubbed. The bleed that we would have across instruments, across microphones, wasn't a problem because those those players, what they did, when they were well rehearsed, as Prince made sure they were. They were killing it. Like there was no need to go back in and overdub and struggle the lead had from a live track. Certainly, I will add. Certainly, monitoring was a problem because the only way um, I could monitor was, was. either through headphones or putting my ear right up close to the speaker while the band was playing this is a warehouse so the sound is uh, ricocheting all over the place there are plenty of echoes to deal with that are hard to control and monitor wedges that the band is using to hear themselves while they rehearse so i was contending with all of that while i was recording and having to listen on headphones but um uh, we got it done if you listen to Let's Go Crazy on the Purple Rain album that was recorded live at that warehouse just uh, I think we uh, overdubbed well we certainly overdubbed the guitar solo and I don't remember whether or not he overdubbed his lead vocal but I don't think he did I think that was alive
0: How did his home studio develop in the time that you were working with him?
1: There was no room for development in his home studio. It was just that one bedroom. He lived in this house on Kiowa Trail in Chanhassen, so he just had this bedroom. That's all he had, and that's why he started making plans to build Paisley Park Studios in the time when I was with him. So I joined him just after he came off the 1999 tour, and he was, he'd already begun his work on the Purple Rain album, Uh, and also he was beginning work on the Purple Rain movie. So by the time the movie was done, the album was done. By the time he completed the tour of Paisley Park, or rather, of the Purple Rain tour, he had um, had already begun the plans for Paisley Park Studios, which was this huge complex. It's in Chanhassen, Minnesota, and it has a grand total of, I think, five recording studios, from the two big rooms, Studio A and B, to the smaller rooms, Eve, and uh, and then there's there's a big soundstage there as well. So he had this grand plan, which he was able to bring to fruition, although it took so many years to make Paisley Park, to make it a reality, and that, coupled with the fact that Prince recorded so quickly, we did a lot of albums. We did Around the World in a Day, and we did the Parade album before Paisley Park Studios was ever finished. As a matter of fact, the Sign of the Times album was pretty much done when Paisley Park Studios opened. Now Prince did during this time when I was with him, he did buy a new house. He moved to a new house and that new house had had a, a bigger room downstairs in the basement that was designed as a studio. It was um, just one small ISO booth, that's all there was space for, but it was a, a much bigger control room. We moved the same custom Dimitio console over there to that room. We had a tape machine soffit with an MCI in it and um, still had the same Westlake monitors that he loved so well. But that, that was a little bit bigger in his the next home.
0: Do you remember the kind of mic collection that you had available at the time?
1: It was kind of the usual stuff. Um, Prince's preferred vocal mic was a tube U-47. When he wasn't working at home, he liked to work at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles. Peggy McCreary, who was a staff engineer at Sunset, would he, he had been working with Peggy since like 1980 when he first started working at Sunset. When I came along, Peggy and I would work together with him when we were out in Los Angeles. There was one particular U-47, because Sunset Sound had lots of them. There was one particular... The one that um, was especially good on Prince's voice, and Peggy would set that aside for him every time. Prince had also bought a Neumann U47 tube mic that we used at home. He, I think we had a couple of the case one went down. Other than that, it was the usual stuff. It was the Sennheiser 421s, 441s, and of course the um, SM57s, and then the AKG four fourteen and km84s u87s we certainly had the usual stuff that you would have lying around
0: in those days in the 80s did you have much outboard processing there available
1: yes we did uh he liked the emt devices which were great so we had an emt 140 for reverb he had a prime time digital delay he really got a lot of use out of that and that um Subsequently I came to really love delays as well and I used them in my whole career. Always had Lexicon stuff around. We used the 240L at that time which later became the 480L, the Lexicon reverb. Those are so versatile and useful. But pretty much the whole industry was using them every time. Uh the Eventide Eventide Micro Pitch Shift. I don't know if Prince was using that when I joined him, but I know that I used it on Eventide Micro Pitch Shift Patch. Everything that Eventide makes is great. So we always had a harmonizer available to us. Um, the usual brands, the Lexicon and Eventide, and EMT, and, uh, of course, Universal Audio. Um, 1176s, yeah, we had those. But for, for Prince's Voice, because he was an expert at, um, he knew he had good microphone technique. So it was not necessary to use a compressor on his voice because he knew microphone technique. He, he can adjust the volume by how close he gets to the mic. So for, for a singer like that, uh, you want to use a limiter and uh, that just so it can grab just the hottest peaks that the singer didn't account for. So we used the LA-2A primarily on his voice at that time. Um, we certainly had the LA3As, those are useful on other instruments. 1176 on drums, maybe on guitar as well. But I think those were, those were, that was fairly standard practice, I think, in the industry in those days. Some of the things we did not use a lot with him, which I ended up using more later, was like the DBX 165 and the DBX 160. Those things were really useful as well, but for Prince's sound, it wasn't complimentary.
0: With the more kind of dramatic, reverbs and delays he would use on his voice, would he be monitoring those when he was doing takes or was it added afterwards? Oh no,
1: always. Always. He wanted to have the sound dialed in. We were always mixing as we went along. Uh, And i Forgot to mention the AMS reverb and the AMS delays. He loved them, in particular the AMS non-lin reverb. Uh, we really got a lot of use out of that, uh, as you can hear hear it quite a bit on the Parade album. He loved that AMS non-lin, um, that particular patch, the non-linear reverb. So what we would do is, as as he was playing... I'd be sit there at the console and and dial in sounds. You couldn't make drastic changes while he was playing; that would interrupt his flow. But I knew what he liked. I knew what reverbs he liked on voice and on piano, and I had the difference between a, a big long reverb that he might like on a ballad versus the shorter, more exciting plate sounds that he would like on a dance track. I knew uh, I knew that he liked pre-delay on his reverbs. We always made sure to have that. I like I like it myself. I honestly can't remember, it was 35 years ago, how much of the manipulation I did was my own thinking, oh I like the sound of that, versus my um, relation between the sounds that I would dial in and him leaving it. So that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of how you got your cue is if he didn't complain, it meant it was working. It wasn't some praise, but if you um, if you dialed in a sound and he didn't complain and he kept it, that meant he liked it. And that applied to everything, you know, whether it was reverbs or effect or level balancing, um, always working as we went. So then by the time he had added the last overdub to a song, all you had to do was really tweak the mix. So we would often work from the idea of the song. Through to the final mix in one day of recording. Our days in the studio were typically very, very long. We'd just get tracks, especially the tracks that ultimately became singles, he took more time with. He definitely took more time with songs like Raspberry Beret or uh, You Got the Look, uh, songs that were girls and boys, songs that were singles for him. He spent more time on, and that's includes Sign of the Times too. But um, the other songs, the album tracks, and certainly a lot of the stuff that went in the vault, we did very, very quickly. Lightning speed compared to how fast the industry normally goes.
0: Do you recall using any processing across the whole mix, like the two bus at the end?
1: No, not in my time when I was with him, because um, most of the time we were working with discrete consoles, those custom API MIDI. Consoles that didn't have a stereo compressor in the monitor section. When we built Paisley Park Studios, an SSL studio, uh, rather an SSL console was put in the main studio. Time I left shortly after Paisley Park came online in late '87. So yeah, I assume he was using it on the stereo bus afterward. But at the time when I was with him, no. And we were making, we were making records. We were doing mixes for vinyl in the mid '80s. CDs were just coming up. So you always mastered for vinyl first, and then afterward you would master for CDs and then have the mastering engineer, with Prince it was always Bernie Grundman make whatever compression changes were needed for the CD medium compared to the vinyl medium. That took a little bit of, it was a learning curve with that for all of us.
0: Did you have much input into that acoustic design or the equipment for Paisley Park?
1: I did have input. Uh, I had in. But from the equipment standpoint, but also from the economic standpoint, knowing how he liked to work, that was very important. His favorite way of working, if he had his druthers, would be to go from the very first sound that you record onto the tape all the way through to the very end without having to talk to anybody. That's who he was. So what he liked to have was his instruments set up all around him. Drum machine, he usually would take his drum machine and he'd run it through his guitar pedal board He loved those Roland Boss pedals. So he'd have his drum machine there. He'd have his bass tuned and ready to go, plugged through his favorite direct box. With the basses that he used, the Countryman DI was was perfect. His guitars, of course, set up both clean and then through the amp and mic He always wanted to have a piano mic'd and ready to go. His keyboard set up on keyboard stands and ready to roll. So the more... In- instruments you could play for him at the session, the happier he would be. And he especially loved sitting behind the console, having all these things around him and just being able to move from one instrument to the next. The vocal mic, uh, usually his U47, would be hung on a big boom stand uh, and, and hung over the console so that when he was ready to do vocals, he could just pull the mic around to where his chair was, to where he was sitting and amazingly he did a lot of vocals sitting down it's really remarkable that that voice could deliver that kind of power but he did a lot of vocals sitting down not always i could tell by well, you'd leave him alone to do his vocals he needed to be alone in the control room you would label a patch cord with a piece of a piece of tape uh, you'd get him all set up you'd do the routing you'd do the gain you'd dial in the LA-2A, and all he had to do was press record hey, machine to go, and then just move the patch cord over to the next track and arm the next track so that he could do his background vocals. So he would leave him alone to do vocals and then come back into the control room afterward, and often that mic would be hanging there, just right from the chair. Often he was just sitting down. Half as many times he was standing up, of course, but that was remarkable to me. So anyway, back to what I was saying. The design of the control room had to be large enough that he could fit a lot of instruments Around around the um, around the
0: console position. Do you remember what microphone you would have been using on electric guitar?
1: Yeah, then and now um, I like a Sennheiser four twenty one. A four twenty one on the cabinet fifty seven will work really well in a pinch too. But I like on on uh, on a, my uh, rather on a cabinet a guitar cabinet. It's a great microphone. For my sound, for my ear, it works really well. I like it on acoustic guitar. For some makes and models, acoustic guitar 421 works beautifully.
0: What other acoustic guitar mics are you into?
1: Well, for acoustic guitar, um, you have to start with a good sounding guitar. Prince did not have a good sounding acoustic, but he didn't use acoustic very often. He had an ovation. But years later, when I worked with Tony Berg, we had To my ear, the best of the best, we had a lot of Guild acoustic guitars of various sizes. And of course, Gibson makes a great acoustic guitar. And I found with the Guilds and the Gibsons, you can take either a 57 or 21, depending on the player and how hard that player digs in. And what I like to do is position that mic right where the hole meets the body at the front of the guitar towards the neck. Right at that zone there is where you have an impedance mismatch. So you're playing acoustic guitar and you're pulling strings in and out, which is causing an acoustic pressure wave to go out from you, but also into the body of the guitar, into the space. At that zone where the hole meets the solid, top of the acoustic guitar, there's of course an impedance mismatch, which means that sounds going to get all freaky. Sounds will freak out and swirl and disperse. And that's where you get, uh, I think, often a very sweet tone. There have actually been some experiments on this. I found a site that actually modeled how sounds of different frequencies radiate in and on the body of an acoustic guitar. Anyway, you put either a 421 or a 57 neck, and often that's exactly what you want. I just had something I've never experienced before. Uh, This was last month. I went up to Humber College in Toronto to do a couple of workshops where there were all these travel bands, and the artist played acoustic guitar and sang. And uh, we mic'd him up, and we were overdubbing his acoustic guitar and we kept hearing a low-frequency rumble. We changed the mic, we changed the cable, we changed the input, we changed everything, and we kept hearing a low-frequency rumble. It almost sounded like someone was kicking the mic stand. I couldn't use the 421 or the 57 like I would normally use because this guitar player had such a light touch, we had to go with a mic that had more gain, so I ended up with a KM84. Anyway, we kept hearing this low-frequency rumble. It was actually... The guitar player breathing, his touch on the strings was so soft that his exhales were causing this low-frequency rumble. So you you always depending on the player, we ended up putting a pop screen in front of the guitar player's mouth. <laughs> he wasn't singing, he was just breathing, but the mic was picking it up.
0: It's interesting that you're very technical about where you place the mic, but you're using more kind of limited-range frequency-wise mics, like the dynamic mics?
1: The the better the guitar, the cheaper the mic. So if you've got a, a Guild or a Gibson, it's such a good guitar that its own frequency profile, its spectral profile, is going to be quite broad. It's going to have low lows and high highs because it's a gorgeous musical instrument. But you don't necessarily want to pick up the low frequency in an acoustic guitar. Acoustic guitar is typically often playing rhythm. And if it's playing rhythm, you don't want it competing with drums and with bass. You need it to perform a certain function. So if you've got a really nice acoustic guitar, you're gonna want a limited range microphone to roll off some of those low lows and high highs that you're gonna need to add from other instruments. And that's why a 421 and a 57 works ultimately, because it helps that acoustic guitar perform the right function in a mix with other instruments. If you've got a cheap acoustic guitar, one that's not very good, maybe just doesn't have that rich tone, like your guilt want to use a condenser mic, something that's got more gain, and something that's going to pick up the low frequencies that a cheaper instrument won't actually be producing. Um, student at Berkeley College of Music in the department where I teach in music production and engineering sometimes they'll be asked what's your favorite microphone or what's your what's your preferred miking technique for piano or drums or guitar and I always remind them that the correct answer is I'm not miking the instrument I'm miking the music I'm miking the musical part how you mic a piano depends on what that piano is doing in the recording. Is it playing a rhythm part? Is it playing a lead part? What tones in that part need to be need to be expressed in the music? Are we expressing melody, expressing harmony? Is it a counter melody? Uh, you need to mic your instruments with an ear toward the arrangement. That's why being a producer helps make you a better engineer.
0: Do you have an approach for recording acoustic guitars in stereo?
1: I don't, uh, I I don't typically do that. I don't do that. It's it's a, a mono instrument, so, so that I made. I've I've never done it. Um, what what I did, what I preferred to do, is just layer the acoustic guitar. Do one recording that you pan left, and then double it and pan it right. I would prefer that than using two mics on a on the one instrument. I don't, you know, when when in nature would you actually. Have your face in front of an acoustic guitar ring, let's say the high strings in your right ear and the low strings in your left ear, <laughs> just or maybe the the headstock in one ear and then the body of the guitar in the other ear. I don't know that that would the guitar sounds miking in stereo, but and I, it doesn't work for my notion of how I hear music, which brings me to the point that everyone's got a different ear, and that based on what you want, what you're seeking. I've got a co-author right now. He and I are writing a book and we're also simultaneously doing a research project and are with what people visualize, what they see in their mind's eye when they are listening to music. Turns out, when my partner and I were comparing notes, what he sees when he listens to records is in colors. What I see and have always seen since I was a little kid when I listen to records is I see the musicians performing not necessarily on a concert stage, my preferred musician in the studio making that record. That's the reward that I'm seeking myself as a music listener. So when I'm making music to make a record, I'm thinking of the reward. I want to be able to picture those players, those singers. However, for many people, this surprised me when I learned of it, but for many people, picture players actually ruins the experience for them. I I couldn't believe it when I heard it, but it's true of many people. We've done this research now and we know many people actually like to, uh, well, actually the majority of people actually like to visualize themselves and their own memories of this, uh, the memories that might be elicited from listening to this record. Sometimes people visualize the story in the lyrics. Many people just see abstract shapes and colors or fantasy worlds that don't exist. They don't actually want to see or hear, I should say, but they don't want to see the human beings that are playing and singing to them. And that would, you can certainly extrapolate from that and figure that record makers, producers and engineers, We represent the music listening public so there's enough variety between us that we may approach our record making from either a realistic perspective or, in many cases, a very abstract perspective where it's really hard to actually see the player in your mind's
0: eye. It's interesting that you favour a more naturalistic approach when you kind of learn with, I mean, to me, a lot of those like Prince records sound very unnatural, kind of digital reverbs and drum machines obviously and quite extreme effects it's interesting that you've kind of now veered more towards very naturalistic approach
1: yeah but what was natural about those was that there was real human beings playing in real time it was all to analog tape so of course you didn't pitch your time correct the performances that you heard were the performances that were played that's the beauty of of analog. It was a slower way to make records and certainly more constrained. With Prince, we only had 24 tracks. Um, You could lock two machines together and get 48, but he was too impatient for that. He'd get all his work done in 24 tracks. So um, it was a a different style of record making. When I listen to Prince records now or any records that were made in that era, I I know that I'm listening to people who played that type that's That's rewarding to me personally. It's rewarding to many other listeners too. For some listeners um the listeners often the listeners today actually prefer a a more artificial and in class. It just blew my mind and it was so funny, but it was also so sad. So I was in class teaching the advanced production class. And in that advanced production class, the students have all, all semester to produce and record and mix three songs for project. So a student named Joe is sitting up there with me at the console, and he's playing his work in progress. And that just happened to be, it was a basic track, drums, bass, and guitar. And it was kind of, you know, classic rock style, like 90s era, Green Day era rock. So he played the track. It sounded great. And I told him, sounds great. Then a kid named Jared, who's sitting in the back, We're going to fix those out-of-time snare drum hits, right? And I said, what out-of-time snare drum hits? I didn't hear anything sounded off to me. And he said, Jared says, play it back. Play the end of the bridge where it goes into the out of The drummer at the end of the bridge does this kind of blast beat. And then when he comes back into the chorus, the first snare that he hits is ever so slightly softer compared to where it should be. But I explained to the class, look, If I'm listening to a recording where a drummer has just gone with his right arm, let's say, on the snare, when he does come back for that next hit, I better hear that snare be softer and a little bit later. Show me how hard you worked, brother. Because <laughs> if you still have energy left, then you could have done a better job on that. Class. These performance gestures, small errors in timing and velocity and pitch, tell us something about intentionality, what the performer meant to say, how hard the performer worked, the performer is holding back. So I explain all of this, and I say to them, now, now that I've told you all this, class, do you still think that those snare hits should be corrected? And these... People, you know, they're all 21 years old. It really made me laugh. But then a kid named Max said, you know, at some point, it's no longer the drummer playing to you. It's the machine playing. And I said, Max, I think that's one of the saddest sentences I've ever heard in my life. My whole record-listening life, I have wanted human beings to play to me. I have sought that out. That is my reward. That's why I love music, is I'm listening to people give me performances. I don't want the machine to play to me. But today's listeners are accustomed to hearing everything be perfect, to having no timing errors, no pitch errors, no velocity errors. They're accustomed to music that is very artificial and t- Terms of performance gestures. There's nothing wrong with that. Human beings, we love two different kinds of movies. We like documentary films. We watch them on Netflix. But we also like a movie or Spider-Man or Marble Man or whatever those modern movies are. Those modern movies depict worlds that don't exist, just like modern records reveal performances that didn't happen and sounds, in many cases, that don't actually exist, that don't correspond to any known musical That's the work of the sound designers today. This is part of the reason why um, electronic dance music and techno music is so popular. Um, It's made by the machine, human beings manipulating the machine, but ultimately what's playing to you it's not a person there. There's a machine there. That's kind of cool. Just like when you watch, I don't know, many zombie movies. Obviously, I don't like that. That's not my style of movie. That's not my preferred style. But a lot of people don't like that. Those are very popular. Those big blockbusters with zombies and dragons and all that kind of stuff.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that age because I'm actually 21 as well. And quite often, when I'm doing mixes mm. or productions for people, I don't. I won't change things unless they ask me to basically so if they make a mistake or something I generally like to leave it in or a mistake to their ears mm. and people quite often see that as not like a deliberate choice that I've left it in but more like oh didn't you notice that they think I they think I've made a mistake by leaving it in
1: isn't that interesting too um in another class uh, a recent class student played the demo and uh the lead singer's voice had some pitch problems so I told the student you're gonna to have to work with that singer because there's some pitch issues and then one of the other students in the class because they critique each other's work said I actually didn't bother that actually didn't bother me and then that was okay too and I looked at them and I said really you guys are okay now with these blue notes and these kind of out of out of pitch and they looked at me and they said yeah that's now, when it's not quantized, when it's not melodined or auto-tuned, that is a uh, city. And I said, wow, that's great. I've been waiting years for that to happen. I think that's wonderful. So it goes to show us that as the generations roll forward, as we have more options, whether it's in the visual arts or it's in movie making or it's in record making, as we have more options, we can serve a wider variety of consumers. So back in the realistic era of record making, the people who really didn't like visualizing the performers, they were out of luck. They had to listen to jazz or classical if they didn't if they wanted a record that didn't have vocals in it um but today they can listen to electronic dance music or techno and those people are feeling like this is a golden era of music for them for many folks who are like me and who like naturalistic records realistic performances where they go oh the music today doesn't give us the reward we want it's there's you can't say better or worse it's just different
0: i guess different things just trigger different Emotional responses and different things bother different people.
1: Yes, yeah. It's like going to an art museum. Some folks like realistic paintings and other folks like the abstract stuff. I'm just the opposite when it comes to paintings. I love abstract art. absolutely love it. It rocks my world. And the realistic paintings, I admire the technique, but it doesn't give me the same visceral thrill that abstract art does.
0: What's your approach for recording drums then? Is it quite kind of naturalistic in how you're getting them to sound?
1: Well, it always was. (coughs) Pardon me, I'm so sorry. Back in the era when I was making records, um, yes, um, a naturalistic sound was kind of what I went for. What I personally always liked, and I still like it today, I like um, tight, dry, and punchy. I don't really like ambient drums. I like like I'm right there in front of the drummer. Um... The kick drum sound that I learned to get was Prince's kick drum sound, which today it sounds like a a basketball on a gymnasium floor. And it it was tight and then you could have in the low end of your record, you could have the bass guitar take up a lot of space because the kick drum sound was very for your low frequencies and a narrow cue for your high frequencies, right around 4K. And you carved out a big chunk in the middle For your guitars and for your basses and your keys and for everything else, music absurd. With the records that young people are making today, it sounds ridiculous. The sound that they're going for today is a sound that I I would have considered a bad kick drum sound. Back in the era when I was making records, probably would have been for most records, a pretty bad kick drum sound. But today, today's generation is making art out of so many. Any of the sounds and the non-sounds that my generation discarded. I love what today's generation is doing with distortion and noise and leakage across microphones. The stuff that my generation worked so hard to get rid of, today's generation is actually using making art out of it and having it convey intentionality. So to answer your question, if I were to mic drums today, um, I'd do sound that I like, that makes me happy. But for a lot of people that it wouldn't be um, necessarily an appropriate sound today. Oh, I was going to say I work hard to get the right sound for the arrangement. As an engineer, I certainly think like a producer, and I think of the arrangement you are going to fit together. Um, so you can know where to. So you can know where the spotlight of the listener's attention is going to go, and, and you can know how much work. You were the director on a film and you were deciding um, how much dialogue to give to each of the the actors. Is this going to be just basically a dialogue between the two lead actors or the lead actor and the co-star? If so, the extras are just going to hang around the fringe and pipe in every so often or is this more a scene of an ensemble interaction with five or six different people in a room you do the same thing on a record what is this record saying what is each instrument saying and what you have to do is choose your sounds based on the parts and based on the voices need to be
0: with getting those kind of tight dead drum sounds that you like is that more based around setting up the drum kit in the acoustic space or are you kind of focusing on close miking things as well
1: No, it's very much about starting with the drum kit itself. Um, We have to remember, and it was actually one of my students, and he said to me, remember, he said, the drum kit is one instrument, one instrument. I wish I had thought like that when I was making records. I always did what most engineers, I believe, do, which is you get your kick drum sound, and then you focus on your snare drum sound, focus on your tom sounds and your cymbal sounds. But this student, whose name is Andrew, he always thought of the drums. He plays them this way too. He's playing one instrument, much like a piano player would do. His thinking got me to reevaluate my approach to miking drums. Is drum kick drum is usually a good place to start. Walk around the room hitting it. Where does it sound the sweetest? And you put that instrument in the part of the room where you bring the best out of that instrument. You don't automatically go to an ISO booth. Uh, You don't automatically go to right in front of the glass. Think about the music, think about the voice in this composition, and put that drum kit where it will show off that voice to its best advantage, where the drum sounds the sweetest. And then, of course, tuning drums. His drums don't have a pitch. They have a tone, but they don't have a pitch. A drum signal is a stochastic signal. It doesn't have the sporadic. So um, tune it to where the tension on its heads make it sound the sweetest, not too tight and not too soft for the best tone in it. If you tune your drums expertly, you won't need uh, you won't have any trouble when you're miking them. It'll be really easy because that you've started. with a a gorgeous tone, just like starting with a great acoustic guitar or a great piano. So that you start with the instrument. Another one of my former students, also very smart, his name is Alex. He said to me, he'd been out in the business a few years, he said, be sure and tell your students when they're in school, don't buy microphones. Every studio you go to is going to have microphones. Buy gear buy musical instruments, buy snare drums, buy bass heads, buy guitar amps, buy guitars. He said, because, very sagely, he said, than the difference in microphones, bammo, 100% correct. And I would have figured that out for myself if I had just thought about it for a few minutes. Of course, the difference in snare drums and microphones. If you want to get a good snare drum sound, have a good snare drum. Um, that, that's very wise advice, I think, for young record makers today.
0: What about piano? What have been some of your approaches to recording it over the years?
1: <laughs> you always have to listen to the role that the piano is serving. Is it going to be a rhythm instrument? Is it a melodic instrument? If it's a melodic instrument, is it the is it carrying most the weight in the song? In other words, if it's a piano ballad, you have to get a very broad spectrum sound. Um, and then you choose your microphones and you listen to the player. How dynamic is that player? Position your mic in such a way that you've optimized the signal that's coming off the instrument. Uh, and then uh, in other songs, of course, the piano is just going to be uh, uh, basic rhythm instruments. You'd mic it like you would drums. A more narrow uh, frequency range and a probably more proximal position of the microphones. So depending on the role the piano was playing, I could mic it from anywhere. Anything from like a, a pair of dynamic mics to uh, 414s. I always love the AKH 414 on a Yamaha piano. Those sound very nice. If you're working with a Bosendorfer or Steinway, it's a less percussive piano than the uh, than the Yamaha piano. And um, for me personally, I, I didn't record that many of those. tomorrow. I'd still I don't have a go-to sound for a. Um, for a, a very fine instrument like that.
0: Could you talk a bit about how you kind of moved on from working with Prince and some of your kind of most memorable projects, projects from just after that time?
1: Yeah, I left Prince in late 11. I moved back to Los Angeles. And the very first artist I worked with after that was um, the Jacksons. The Jacksons knew I was in L.A. and they contacted me and I did a record called 23 Jacksons. So, working with Jackie and Jermaine at their family compound, the Jackson home at that time, and this is the late 80s, was on Havenhurst Street in Encino. Michael was just building um, Neverland. Michael was actually on tour at that time, he wasn't home. So, I, I, I worked in their home studio and I lived at the house for a few months. Then, from there, I was very fortunate. I met up with the producer Tony Berg, and Tony and I did quite a few alternative indie records in the late 80s and the early 90s. From there, uh, I met two guys that changed my life completely, and that was Tommy Jordan and Greg Kirsten. They were in a band called Geggy Ta. Geggy was Greg Kirsten, and Ta was Tommy Jordan. Those two guys were signed to Luakabop David Burns label, when I met them, it changed my life. So we, we did Grand Opening, their first record, all three records that they made. Their second record was um, Sacred Cow, and then I did some of their third record. I did some mixing on it, but they moved on to another producer, and I moved on to other records. And this was in the late 90s. That last album was called Into the O. Anyway, Greg Kirsten, the band broke up after that. Greg Kirsten went on to great success. He's a very successful producer. He's best-known Foo Fighters and Beck, and recently worked with Maggie Rogers. Greg Kirsten's career has been on fire as a producer himself today. Uh, Anyway, um, in the late 90s, I was approached by Bare Naked Ladies to work with them on the Stunt album. I had three weeks in between records. But I said, yes, I liked those guys and had wanted to work with them for a while. So in 97, I guess it was, no, early 98, I handed off that record to uh, David Leonard, another producer, engineer, mixer. He mixed it and did uh, the remaining overdubs, and that was the stunt album. That stunt album with the single One Week sold over five million copies. With the money that I made from the royalties on that record, I was able to leave the music business in the year 2000. I left the music business and entered college as a freshman at age 44, and uh, went for eight straight years and got my PhD.
0: What do you remember about working on that record with David Byrne?
1: Oh, right. Yeah, the, the David Byrne record was so much fun. We did that in New York. He brought me in. He brought in co-producer, and we worked at a studio called Clinton Clinton Recorders in New York. And uh, David had actually started that album with a different producer-engineered team, and he decided that that producer engineer team, although they were very great, they weren't right for him, for his sound. So I came in not having had the opportunity to do pre-production with David. Uh, We had, we had the studio time already booked. So we had to just kind of hit the ground running. It was great working with him. He's so smart and he's funny and he's generous of spirit. And I would have, really liked to have started that record with him from the get go and to have been able to work on the songs together and and to have sort of spent some time on on arrangements and the traditional production choices. however, coming in after a record had already been begun i uh, i i was I had one hand kind of tied behind my back a little bit I loved engineering it, and I loved working with him. He's, I'm, I'm, it's very nice to see his career enjoying a second life right now because he is a most deserving artist. Brilliant guy. I'm proud of that record that we did. Some of my favorites of my career from 88 until 2000 include a record called Birmingham Road by the artist Jeff Black. The band that played on that record was the original Wilco band, minus Jeff Tweedy. So it was Uh, John Sturrett on bass and Kenny Ray Coomer on drums and the late, great Jay Bennett on pretty much everything else. We also brought in Canadian um, piano player and multi-instrumentalist Greg Wells. He's now a producer with Katy Perry and all these other artists, but we brought Greg Wells in to play on it. And man, working with those great players, we were at Willie Nelson's studio and doing that record, It was one of the highlights of my life because those guys were so smart and so easy to work with. I've had a a great time, I can say, on all the records that I've done. Another one that was completely different stylistically from this was, I was not the producer on it, I was the mixer, but working with Tricky, Tricky from Massive Attack. When Tricky had his solo career, he brought me in after working with Tricky. Wonderful guy, wonderful guy. We had the best time really wonderful experiences. He was an interesting artist to work with because like me, he is technically speaking a non-musician. He just happens to be very, very musical. So he was constantly being inspired, constantly being inspired, a little bit like Prince in that way. So sometimes he would give me um, a track to mix. We had two thirty-two 32-track tracks mitsubishi digital tape recorders this was in the late 90s we had these two locked together so essentially we had over 60 tracks to work with and he'd just keep layering stuff and then he'd say to me go ahead and do a mix and i could choose i could mix mix it with using just three or four of those tracks or all 60 of them if i wanted he was he was great ability he gave me and he'd come in he'd listen to what i had done he might get then inspired, re-inspired, and we'd continue overdubbing on it. Sure was fun.
0: Moving on to kind of your career now as a teacher, could you pinpoint one thing that you think students are quite often lacking when they come into the recording course in terms of skills or kind of variety of skills?
1: I think what students need to learn what they're very naive on when they first come in, at least at Berkeley, understand the difference between a song and a record. And they certainly don't understand the difference between a record and a recording. Um, that's true of nearly all of the young people at Berkeley College of Music. They often tend to think they learn a song, they learn their parts, they practice it, they go into the studio and they play it. And they're good players at Berkeley, really good players. So they don't make any mistakes. They don't have. Any timing errors? Sounds good. And they think they're done. They think that's a record. That's not a record, that's a recording. Just like the difference between a documentary film and a Hollywood block or something like that, a recording is a documentary film. It's a record of something, action, that actually happened. Real human beings playing real music, but most records, especially these days, most hit records didn't actually happen that way in the studio. The hit records today, for the longest time, pop records reflect action. So students don't recognize how much time it takes to make a record. They don't recognize how much manipulation is involved. They're certainly unaware of the simple fact that in the last century, 60s 70s 80s 90s and in the 2000s many of the records that they love by the pop stars they love pop star can sang it but they don't recognize how um relatively common it is for a band not to play on their own record for session musicians to play on on. now that depends on the band depends on the genre of music of course there's great variability in that but record makers Tend to involve studio musicians and people who know how to play for a record. The young musicians at Berkeley are doing what all young musicians do they learn how to play at home in their bedroom. And then they join up with some friends when they're teenagers and they learn how to play with other people. And then they pass their auditions and they get into college and they play in their classrooms. They play for their teachers and they play a few shows. What they need to learn how to do is play to a microphone to play to a microphone all alone in a booth, that microphone signal will ultimately be transduced and become the signal that comes out of that earbud or out of that headphone. So there's a kind of intimacy that happens in the vocal booth and in the studio that you have to learn how to achieve. Just like an actor has to learn how to uh, control the size of his or her gestures. Their gestures their facial gestures, their body language, their hand gestures, will be one thing, one range of expressivity. But if they're playing for the small screen, and that would be different from the skill set of of being in a movie. So you have to learn to match the size of your gestures. In the case of records, it's very different than um, a live show or a live concert setting. Um, that that's something that our young record makers need to learn is how to evaluate those performance gestures and then our young performers have to learn how to optimize their gestures for record another thing they have to learn is as i said earlier the difference between a great song and a great record a great song is one that you learn chords to and that might become a jazz standard for example that can be covered in infinite variety of ways a great song is timeless a great record doesn't necessarily early start with a great song. It helps if it does but it doesn't have to be a great song. I don't know, this speaking from my era, I don't know anybody who would say that da-da-da-da-da-da my Sharona. Da, 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 da. It was a huge hit record in the 80s. Not a great song. Who's gonna sit and learn chord changes to that? It's not a great song. It was a great record. There are certainly many many ways to make a great record from an okay song uh, record makers need to learn how to do that. And to do that, you have to um, give the audience, give your listeners something that is of value. It doesn't have to be the lyrics. It doesn't have to be the chord changes. It can be just, I don't know, you've got Clyde Stubblefield on drums. Or if you've got Jimmy Nolan on rhythm guitar, you can do the song like Hot Pants Gives You Confidence. <laughs> and that record or Mother Popcorn or any of that funk stuff was insanely satisfying because of how good the players were and how tight the rhythm section was. and if you're a record maker if you're a producer an engineer a mixer to know what it is you're um <clears throat> to understand your raw material and to know how to optimize the sh- shape that raw material takes for the uh, for the most number of people for the audience that you're hoping to attract
0: it's interesting that you were saying before that you favor a kind of naturalistic sound yet there's still a difference between that and a uh final record so I guess it's about finding the balance between those two things
1: oh definitely yeah and I'm understanding how far you can go in how far you can go toward that end I would not be the right producer for any record that was entirely abstract or artificial sharp We say anything that was entirely um, electronic or that was done entirely in box. I I simply would not be the right producer for that because I wouldn't know what to do because I wouldn't share um, that particular audience is seeking. I don't know how to make those records speak. Increasingly, so many of the students at Berkeley today, they're in their 20s and they're doing a lot of work in the box and they do a lot of really cool things. But the lens through which I evaluate that work is uh, my own frame of reference. My own frame of reference is shaped by what I like in music. And to use, I love using analogies, comparisons are shorthand when you're talking about the arts, but another analogy might be food. Um, Today, you see in restaurants, you see kale and you see quinoa, and you see lots of new flavors that you didn't see in the 60s. You would never see that on a restaurant menu in the 60s. Tastes change. They evolve. Uh, but our tastes develop pretty much when we're young, and it is what it is. Uh, people have a certain appetite for spiciness or sweetness or saltiness, just as they do in their musical taste and in their taste in art. It's important to use the term that Prince used. He would call it the street where you live, I know my street. I know the music that I like. I know the sounds that I'm listening for. I know what I'm good at optimizing. I know my sound, and uh, when I listen to music that comes from other streets, I can, it definitely, doesn't mean that I have an, have an appetite for it.